Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Kenneth Shank. He is a a professor of New Testament and a leader of enrollment and innovation vice president, I believe, of those things at Houghton uh, College, uh, where he's been for a few years. And previous to that, we were colleagues and he was my boss here at uh, the seminary. And I learned uh, so much of my exegetical practice uh, from him. uh, And he's just an amazing scholar and thinker. And I love having him on the show. And I hope you will enjoy him again this week as he is a quite often regular guest. Our text this week is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along to others so they may benefit as well. And be sure to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash fresh text if you'd like to see ways to support the show financially, as well as get some bonus content that way. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Awesome. So yeah, go ahead and give it a read. Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter two, verses five through 11. So this is uh, poetic. So uh, your translations will vary depending on their degree of interpretiveness. Let me try to be very non-interpretive and wooden in translation, starting with verse five. This be thinking among you, which also in Christ Jesus, who in form of God existing, not plunder considered the to be equal to God, but himself he emptied, form of servant having taken, in likeness of humans having become, and in shape having been found as a man, he humbled himself, having become obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Therefore also God superexalted him, and bestowed on him the name, the above every name, in order that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of the heavens and on on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks. For your word, your son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, who became obedient, took on the very form as a human being and as a servant, obedient all the way to death on the cross. And we thank you even more that you super exalted him for our sakes and for your glory. And so in gratitude for this great mystery, we now ask that we by your spirit would have our eyes and ears opened to this text before us that celebrates this mystery, but also our spiritual senses would be opened up and empowered uh, to discern how this word speaks to us in our time and in our place and how the obedience of Christ, as well as his lordship, both his humility and his exaltation, uh, might begin to shape and continue to shape our lives in our time. I ask this for Ken and for myself and for all those listening in. May your spirit move with us that these might not be dead words. Beautiful they oh they are that they might yet again be heard as a living word for us today. 
We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I promise, out of the gate, Ken, to, to delay questions of theological interpretation to our second segment. So let's just hug the text, you know, in terms of who is this and when is this happening and all that. Let's just bracket all that because I think it'll distract if we start there. So I want to promise that to you and our listeners and just really like look at some of these words and phrases. Um, of course, you already offered in a way, you've already offered some of your first observations by offering your own translation. So if, if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you about a few of your choices sure. just to get us started. Is that okay? Kind of commenting on your own sure. sight reading there. I won't ask about all the just awkward word order stuff. That was just you trying to let us feel the rhythm of the Greek, but uh, some translation. I noticed you went with what, what, what is in verse six, Harpagmon, did you say what booty Existing. bounty? Oh, existing for sure. But next line, oh, not plunder. Uh, he considered plunder, plunder. Nice. Not seizing. Not um, now. He now, did not uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped, as I remember hearing it as a kid. But something to be grasped. It's not just a grasping in general. It's this kind of uh, this plunder, and it's a noun. It's nice. Something to be grasped is a in English would be a, that's a that's a participle, but this is just a simple noun like. Plunder. I love it. Right. Is this like what a pirate would go get? Is there plunder? Right. It's kind of. Yeah. And let me, let me say that this whole passage is like, it's like retaking a European city in world war two. It's, this is street, street battle, street by street. (laughs) Every, almost every inch of these verses is fought over in article and book. And it feels that way, at least, at least to me. Even the choice of plunder yeah. leaves open the possibility that it's something he doesn't yet have that he With didn't Latin go seeking. With Latin phrases to boot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, 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 is this uh, harpagmas is the Greek. Is this something that is not yet seized or something that has already been seized? Is it a race rapienda or, 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 or a race rapta? I mean, th- there, <laughs> so, there the, are, so the interpretation of this chapter has its own history of uh, oh, Latin There's lingo, a, huh? <laughs> a whole book by Ralph Martin on the hymn of Christ, it's called. Of course, and everything's debated. Is it a hymn? Is it a poem? Is, is, right. it, is Paul quoting something else? Is this something they sang in church? Or did Paul just suddenly go hymnic? <laughs> should, should it be put in poetic form or should it be just a paragraph form? I mean- Every, everything about this is debated, it seems to me. Yeah, you're right. I Like, I tried to avoid that by saying like, well, let's just go through some words. But even how you translate that word already yeah. gets into larger questions. And I can see why something to be grasped or clung to is a way you can tell that that common English translation has been influenced by later tradition to assume that he already has, you know, this uh, this equality with God. Yeah, is it, is the form of God something he's trying to get, or is it something mm-hmm. he already has? I mean, every line of this is debated. And and I, I remember that used to get quickly solved for me by thinking about the reference to Adam and the you know the image of God. But even there, it's a little ambiguous. It, does he is he's made in the image of God and toward his likeness? Are these things he has? Are these things he's he's made? toward or for? Is this the human's destiny or his possession? That doesn't actually solve the problem. I used to think that that reference back to Genesis 1 and 1 and 2 solves it. I think it helps, but it doesn't solve the problem. It it informs it, I think, significantly, because I think there is something big and cosmic happening here, but this is not Nicene Christianity. This is, this is first century Jewish quasi-rabbinic ways of talking about Jesus as Messiah. And I think the reference back to Adam is more illuminating than thinking of a timeless, eternal word of God. I, I believe in that, but I, I don't think importing sure. that into Philippians 2 is helpful, as I indicated at the beginning. We won't go there too soon because I think it'll overread the passage, though, though it's not invalid. It's not the immediate sense of the text, the so, literal sense of the text. So my own doctor father, who I studied with, J- Jimmy Dunn, had a, a very unique and idiosyncratic interpretation of this that I, as far as I could tell, no one agrees with. Um, Those and, are the best and, kinds. <laughs> and he, he, he did not see any preexistence in this at all. And, it, and basically um, this was Jesus not being Adam. 
that Adam grasped the, the fruit. Adam went for the fruit. Jesus was not like Adam. Jesus didn't go for the fruit. Um, and so from in that interpretation, if I, if I remember correctly, um, the form of God is, or, or the equality with God is something that Jesus didn't go for. I don't think that's what, what Paul is saying here uh, myself. I think that Paul is assuming that Jesus starts off in the form of God and that he chooses not to exploit or, or take advantage of his equality uh, with God. I mean, that's the way I take uh, take the train of thought in those uh, those two verses. Interestingly, even what kind of a participle is existing in the form of God? Is, is it a concessive participle, which is the way I take it, although he existed in the form of God, he uh. didn't consider that something to plunder? Or is it a... Uh, See, who would be Ernst Kaseman? Uh, because he was in the form of God, he didn't need to to grab ah, on. Ah, go plunder it. Go plunder it, which I don't agree with. You know, so but you I mean, it's, it's just, not it, impossible. It it's not grammatically impossible. No, it but, pretzels yeah. your head, this passage. This is why I had you on for this one, Ken. I specifically chose you for this passage. Because <laughs> I knew you'd be tuned Kaseman, to the complexity of options. Because Kaseman was a, a Lutheran in the you know he's a 50s, 60s, 70s guy. He he couldn't. If, and I, please forgive me if you if if I'm wrong on any of these things. This is my memory here. But in verse five, he he had difficulty seeing that there was a comparison being made between us and Jesus. From what I remember, Jesus was so different from us that this couldn't be saying the way I think everybody takes it have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? This is what Jesus would do. You be like Jesus. He, he, if I remember correctly, he completely divorced, have the mind in you, which was in Jesus from what came afterward. I'm not even sure how, how you could argue for that, but you'll notice it is a bare verse five. I translated it very bare bones. This be thinking among you, which also in Christ Jesus. Yeah, have the mind in you is a lot more that might be importing more than is initially obvious, which is a way it's translated, I think, in the NIV. But yeah, being mind, what'd you say? Having in mind, being in mind, what'd you say? Be, this be thinking. Be thinking, nice. Because <laughs> it, it, it could be taken then as kind of, you know, have this in mind, be inspired by that to do this very different thing. Um, I guess would be the only way that Kaseman could handle it. Although some of it is that that German scholarship has a tendency to be overdetermined by its analysis of source. Now, I think analyzing layers of source is fascinating, but I will then want to make the move and say, okay, having seen that, now how does it work in the text? And it might be possible that if there is an earlier history of verses 6 to 11, that the, if there's a version of this that predates Paul, even, even in his own prehistory, that verse five probably isn't the opening line of the quote right. hymn, right? right. And the so the, so I could totally see, I'm not speaking for Kazemon now, but I could see a sort of Deutschophile scholar who's oriented towards source and the, the earlier source as that you're just spending this time. Here's what this would have meant before it was in this epistle. And it's not inconceivable that you could read six through 11 if you pulled it out it might not immediately come to mind that there would be ethical implications for us, which is why verse five is so fascinating because that's how Paul's interpreting it. And I think Paul's interpretation of six through 11, whether these are his words or others' words or a mix is really the, the question before us as interpreters of the text that we now have before us. Do you know what I mean? At some point you have to get to the canonical interpretation and if I and if not, I just not get, get stuck in how it might have meant earlier, although acknowledging that can be interesting because maybe what's radical here in Paul is not this vision of Christ's humility and exaltation. It's the idea that that means we have to live a certain way, that that might be Paul's contribution, Focus, yeah. possibly, possibly. And I, I can tip my hand and say that Please. Uh, there are those who, um, who, who think that Paul's just being hymnic here. Uh, N.T. Wright, I, I believe, would does not think Paul's quoting something here. I personally, and maybe this is when I, just when I did my doctor work, I mean, this, you can, nobody's analyzing my career, but anyway, I think that Paul is probably quoting something and modifying it. There are, I think, yes, yes. I think there are uh, probably three places here where Paul has added material, interpretive material to the hymn 
that he's drawing from and that he's not actually the source of of what was originally uh, a him well, that, you I'll point tip those my out hand. yeah point those so, out to us again whether someone we don't have to agree with those source items they'll at least expose points yeah. of interesting points of interest of interpretation so um, what's the first edition for, this is again I, I may be drawing on done here i can't remember where i got these three but the, it made sense to me um verse eight even death on a cross clarifying he became ob- obedient unto death and then paul who i think luther correctly saw the cross as the center of paul's preaching probably even death on a cross that that's a pauline mm-hmm. explanation or gloss or whatever you want to call it and then in verse 10 for me uh, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Yes. And then lastly, at the end of verse 11, to the glory of God, the father, hmm. which is an interesting thing for me to think Paul is adding, but I'll leave it that for later, maybe. Yeah. So I can see how eight definitely it even has a, I mean, if you're just thinking of this as a poem, it, it works with possibly one exception. There are pretty, pretty clear couplets yeah. Until the you get two. to until you get to eight C, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, even death on a cross, it does disrupt the. There's they, there's these you know these pairs of lines that kind of work pretty well. So and, that does. Suggest, and one of the arguments, yeah, one of the arguments against this being something Paul's quoting is that that there there are a lot of different theories on how the po- poetry breaks down, uh, or how it. How okay, it so where you break the lines would affect your hunches about his amendments yeah yeah well i don't want to get too far off that uh, no no i like that one i like that i i I think it's good to i definitely noticed when you were doing your very wooden translation that the upon the earth you know in heaven upon you know on heaven and on earth and under the earth that that was a real kind of rhythmic disruption of the flow like 10, 10 through 11, if you drop that, flows way better. Um, what's the rationale for the under the glory of God the Father for thinking of that as an addition? Well, uh, <laughs> I could totally just see him just randomly saying that at the end of a sentence. I mean, he does that a lot. He says that phrase. So, so I, I mean, I, I don't know if, if this is helpful. Let me, let me give you – can I give you my poetic breakdown, my personal yes, poetic breakdown? Great. Do it. Yeah. So the first two, I, I see three stanzas, as it were, three four line stanzas. The first two are pretty obvious, I think. The last one is it's kind of like, and here's where scholars go wild. It's like you know, scholars you know just go and and I I I feel the tug, you know, to even see stages of development in this, you know, that that the first two, the first two stanzas were the first stage. And then the third stanza was added, and then Paul quotes it, you know, kind of a three. But anyway, that's where where uh, people say scholars are crazy and they have way too much time on their hand. Just making stuff up to write books. Making stuff up. Like. Um, and at that point, N.T. Wright says, he's not quoting anything here. He's but, a genius and made this himself. Yeah, which is – and N.T. Wright probably is a little extreme the other way, like – Paul's the smartest guy who ever lived and can write and made everything. <laughs> so. And of course, uh, Paul, Paul would say that N.T. Wright's a lot smarter than he was. Uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? That, well, yeah, where'd yeah, you get yeah. that N.T. Wright? I didn't mean that. You're a lot smarter than you. you know. Anyway, um, so the, the first four stanzas for me are, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself having taken the form of a servant. So you have a participle in the first line, a participle in the yeah. fourth line. You have a finite verb in the third third line. So the second lo- uh, would be having become in the likeness of humans having become and in shape having been found as a man, he emptied himself having become obedient into death. So once again, you have a participle in the first and fourth line. In fact, the very same participle uh, having wow. come, yes. Uh, you have a finite verb in the third, the third line. Then the third one's where you don't have that structure anymore. Um, the mm-hmm. third one doesn't follow that form at all, and so it's much more interpretive. Therefore, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name above every name, that every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So those are my four proposed lines. 
for the final stanza. That's the iffy bit. The first two, I think, are very straightforward. Yeah. It's the third, the third one that, uh, and of course, maybe N.T. Wright would say you you could you could modify him and say Paul's quoting the first two stanzas and he's coming up with the third uh, stanza. This is not going to get you out of heaven or into heaven, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> I only took stakes five are, minutes. Of stakes your life. are very low. Stakes are very low on these things, but that's good because what matters at least to me and why I love sort of the scholarly debates, not as ends in themselves, but they draw me to pay attention to details and to notice little things like the, like that repeated participle in the second stanza, right? You know, being in appearance as a human and, you know, being found according to the scheme as a human I mean, those are almost perfectly like Hebrew parallel, right? Two ways of yeah. saying the same thing. Yep. Then he humbled himself or brought himself low, uh, becoming obedient, uh, even unto death. I mean, that's just got a very, and then humility and obedience then become mutually interpreting, right? So like just by, I always find when I find these little proposals of analysis, I'm always kind of like, yeah, maybe it's that, maybe it's not. But all of a sudden now I'm paying attention to things that I would have missed if I'd have just read it straight, you know? And I might, I might also add, and I'm sorry, I just, I have, I've looked at this passage for how many years? Anyway, I mean, this is one of my favorite passages in scripture. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe my favorite passage in all of scripture. I'm not sure. Awesome. Um, But, but um, the incarnational reading would, would take the first stanza into having become in shape as a, as a human, I think. Um, so it, it ends with him and, uh, you know, it's the part of the uh, uh, Nicene uh, Creed where we all bow forward uh, and was made man. And so they you know, having having taken the form of a servant, having become in the likeness of humans. So that's a more yeah. incarnational way of dividing it up to where you, you end with the incarnation. Well, that's perfect bringing that up because that kind of gets into one of the big sort of theological questions when you reference an incarnational reading. So let's pause there and dig into that a little bit after a break. All right. Okay. All right. We're back. Uh, Welcome back to fresh text. I'm here with my guest, Ken Shank, and we're looking at Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. So right before the break, brought up the fact that there's kind of more incarnational readings, which you could think of as importing, I mean, the whole weight of Nicaea and Chalcedon later, but not even that, even just the weight of how, say, the flow of thought in John chapter one works, a kind of Johannine movement, a man from heaven coming down, that that is a reading of this passage, but it actually runs into some problems. For starters, it tends to not be the way that Paul thinks or talks. And furthermore, there are probably if we translate it properly, that reading is not as obvious, right? And so maybe we want to talk about the, the there, very first, uh, what is it? Verse uh, seven, this, the form of God. Yeah. You may have noticed uh, those of you who use the NIV that your Bible says, who being in very nature, God um, took on the very nature of a servant. And uh, I think that's, gen- uh, I think that would generally be called the philosophical reading. I think is what sometimes it's, it's called. It it is a, in, in my mind, a very interpretive reading. I'm not saying it's it's. I'm not saying it's off to, off topic or off substance, but it it is very interpretive because it it's not immediately obvious to me that form of God uh, means very nature God. It sounds sounds very theologized to me in in the in the translation. Yeah, and one can believe that Jesus was the eternal Son. Uh, is his being is in the very nature of God. Believing that does not require that Philippians chapter two, verse six is teaching that, right? Those are two different things, right? A lot of times it's fully formed. Yeah. Yeah. Like that doesn't have to be what's being spoken of here uh, for that belief to be valid. Right. And I've mentioned, I've mentioned uh, Ralph Martin's book. Um, uh, Again, you you just, your, you go, your eyes, um, you know, kind of lose their focus and your, your uh, eyelid starts to quiver when you read some of this stuff, just it's so complicated. But um, uh, I think there are several different interpretations of form of God that have been made. 
Uh, one is the Shekinah interpretation, kind of the glory. The, the what is the what is the form of God? I mean, he doesn't have a nose, you know. But so the kind of who being glorious like God. We've mentioned the Adam interpretation, the image of God, who who being in the image of God. Um, that's that's one you hear. Interest. There's an interesting. If you do a word study on morphe, which is the you know morph to change the shape, there's an obscure reference in one of the apocrypha where it's the status, the the shape of God, the 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 status of God, uh, but that's an obscure reference. But but given the next line, it it does seem at least not impossible. This kind of reference to to the in some way Jesus equal is equal to God. To God. Yeah. yeah, so in some I, way I Jesus see why. Is equal to God. That reading is the the obscurity of it doesn't doesn't completely rule it out given the parallelism with the second half of six and morphe theu a shape of God and morphe dulu the form of a servant. There's clearly a, a contrast between yeah, God, that's and the God and see, servant. See, that's what th- this is. I don't know if you know this. This is under your influence, although then my own study as well in college and in the beginnings of seminary. It was really this passage that kind of turned me off to the NIV. And it was not because, I mean, importing theological baggage is kind of hard to avoid. It's going to happen from time to time, whether you want to or not. Although that that annoyed me. What really put me over the edge is the fact that the poetry, the, just the text is obscured because being in the nature of God and taking on the nature of a servant, or worse yet, if a translation said form of a servant, you know, like it just kind of, disrupts the flow like it's just so the form of a servant that we get so the fact that we don't get what form of god means well in some ways i'm like well of course we don't right that 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 is mysterious by nature right but the form of a servant is sort of more empirically available to us and the contrast then becomes clear right the form of god the form of a servant this kind of the imagery it's very visual even though god cannot be seen and touched and tasted. Of course, the whole point of this story is that what is seen and touched in the flesh of Jesus is, and, and, is the manifestation of God among us, right? So kind of the, 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 the fact that form of God is opaque is something that I think works in favor of using that language because form of servant is what we can see because we can't see the form of God in a way, you know? Uh, yeah. How do we see the form of God? Well, we see it in the form of the servant, Jesus, right? So, I mean, it's like the whole payoff of the the hymn works because form of God is obscure. Whereas once we say nature of God, it's like you said, it's philosophical. It's like, oh yeah, well, there's there's God's attributes and we're, we're importing all of this stuff into the text that doesn't seem to be obviously there to me. And of course, then we get into arguments about kenosis, you know, canonic theology. What did God empty? And we begin to talk about, did God empty his divine attributes, which I think probably goes well beyond anything Paul's thinking. You know, Paul's not thinking, did God give up his omniscience when he became a human being? I mean, that's just not a question Paul's answering. It's a fun debate I'm willing to get into, but I find it irritating when this is used as a proof text to say something about (laughs) the emptying of attributes, because it doesn't seem to be on the, just doesn't seem to be what's on the table here in either the hymn behind Paul and in Paul's use of it. Those could be exercises in distraction, though perhaps valid from other points of view and from other texts might raise these questions. But And if I might confess my past sins against the NIV, um, the NIV 211, I think, is a much, much improved uh, version. Although I will say the NIV 211 retained the very nature God translation yep. of this particular passage. But when John... When John was at Iwu back in two, you know, uh, 1999, good point. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I used to make fun of the NIV for, <laughs> for throwing words that aren't there. You know, they're now in First Peter. Those who he preached to those who are now dead. You know, now is not in the Greek text at all. Yeah. Um, you know, things like that. I used to uh, mock the NIV. Please forgive me, Zondervan. I love you. But um, anyway. Well, that's a good little shout out to say that, you know, in some ways, of course, it's a it's a confession that's at the same time an implicit claim of triumph because they corrected uh, <laughs> the things that you thought needed corrected. <laughs> yeah, no, 2011 one is it's a, it's significantly improved. No, I, I would agree with that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this would have been more interesting debate if I would have kind of put on my dogmatic hat and would have said, no, this is the incarnation. But there's a part of me that says part of its time of year, like now this is, this is just cheesy. So take this all with a grain of salt listeners and Ken, but I'm kind of like, well, I don't know when you read Philippians two at Christmas season, then it's an incarnational, (laughs) but when you read it it contradicts, right. And you can take it that way as a sort of alternative reading and it fits with that right the, the the humiliation in the christ child but since paul just never talks about that we don't have to think that's what he's talking about but when we read this i think when we read this in the lenten and easter season i think it's actually better to take the more original sense because i think it sort of captures the imagery of it that even even whatever could be best even it, whatever was available to him even as a human is what he refused, right? So there, it doesn't have to just be, he doesn't, in a way you could say, he doesn't just empty himself of the heights of deity, but he even empties himself of the heights of humanity, right? Here Royal, in a way. I mean, my, yes. my, my, my leanings, again, I'm not, I don't intend to, to die for e- any of these interpretations. I, I have absolutely no problem with reading this as an incarnational movement. I, I do recognize that it can be read uh, in other ways. So it can be a movement, uh, a form of God. Uh, when you think that the phrase son of God in the Old Testament has strong royal uh, implications, yes. you could take this as even though Jesus was a king, the king, even though Jesus was the king and had all the rights and privileges that pertain to being in the form of God, he took instead the form of, of a servant. So I'm not I'm not denying the incarnational uh, reading of, of it. Um, in Paul, you know, where where does Paul talk about the incarnation? This is the most likely place that Paul talks about the incarnation. There are other places, First Corinthians eight six, you know, and, and so forth. There are, there are other passages, but this is if if Paul's not talking about the incarnation here, then it's hard to know whether Paul talks about the incarnation uh, any anywhere. I'm so I'm I'm not denying uh, that reading necessarily of of the hymn. Yeah, maybe I am. Uh- <laughs> No, but I'm of, not denying uh, its validity. It's Bruce, a, it's that's a, because of Bruce McCormick. Uh, yeah, no, it's no. I'm just like it's a valid Christmas reading, but maybe not an ideal Easter reading. I mean, think about it. You know, if Paul's letters, Philippians, it, you know, is among these some of the earliest Christian literature, and our oldest Christian gospel is almost certainly the Gospel of Mark. I know there's debate on that, but if you think of Mark as representing to some extent the way the Jesus story was being told around the time that Paul was receiving the traditions about Jesus while also receiving direct revelation from, from Christ. And he appeals to both. Well, boy, I don't know. This reading of Philippians 2 really fits with the narrative structure of something like Mark, right? Because he's running around being basically a king, knocking out demons everywhere. He comes out as this powerful figure without there being any, you know, uh, sort of metaphysical or poetic narrative like you get in John or in a very different way, say in Luke or Matthew with the virgin birth and all that, but definitely John, you get kind of man from heaven and then he does that. So to have this just guy appearing who's, I mean, if you want to talk about someone who's in the form of God, you know, look at, look at Jesus in the first nine chapters of Mark, right? All the way up through transfiguration. And then this shift that takes place after the Peter's confession, the predictions of his passion that come after that and his his laying down of that and not calling on the angels and undergoing this. I mean, I don't know the, the sort of narrative flow of Mark, the gospel of Mark in some ways maps beautifully onto this hymn. I don't know. How does that hit you? I'm not, I'm not saying there's influence or source. I'm just talking about the state of how people were thinking about Christ in say the AD 50, um, that there's a, and that I think it's good for us to tap into that. And I think during Holy week, Easter, Passion Sunday, I think that's where the action is. That's where we should be camping less than talking about cosmic stuff that might be really good around Christmas season, but not 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 for right now. So this is the story of Christ who could have triumphed over his enemies and chose not to, which then the, now all of a sudden the ethical implications that Paul frames fit perfectly. It says, do that. That's the way Christians live. We have power at our disposal, but we set it aside um, in order to, you know, uh, live in a community of love and respect. I don't know. How does that strike you? No, I would, I would definitely agree that at this point in the early church, 
Christology is resurrection focused. I mean, John, the Gospel of John is is usually dated to the nineties. You know, it, it so the, the this layer, and even in Acts, even though Acts, I I think Acts, I date Acts to the eighties, but but when as Acts presents the early church. Uh, the book of Acts is very resurrection oriented. The, the, the climax of every sermon except for Stephen's is God raised him from the dead. And I always say Stephen would have gotten there if they hadn't have killed him. You're um, right, right. The climax of all the sermons is God raised him from the dead. And the name Lord and Christ yeah. is associated with that resurrection event yep. as uh, it Acts is in Romans two, one, right? Acts two thirty five, I think it is. Therefore, be, uh, Paul, uh, Peter says in the Pentecost, but God raised him from the dead. Therefore, be assured that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Again, the timing is yeah. risen, Lord and Christ. Yeah. And the fact that he was Lord before that, there's sufficient evidence in other New Testament literature that that thought was being explored. But it's not the forefront. It's not the the thematic way of putting it. And but actually, so we can valid, tie that. But, to- and even John, let's not get off on John, but just a side note, even John you sense that he's aware that he's sort of bringing resurrection language kind of into, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause a lot of these phrases, if you pull them out of context and think of them as standalone sayings, they actually make more obvious. They make more sense as Jesus speaking. Even the tenses of the verbs are all weird. They all sound like Jesus talking as the risen Christ, you know, but his, the John's insight is to say, ah, everything we know about the risen Christ was actually true all along. And I, I think, think it kind of spoils the rest of the gospels and the rest of the new Testament to say, Oh, they were all really thinking that. And they just forgot to say it. Right. makes more sense to say, John comes along and says, guess what? It was always there. You know, like, that's cool. Like, I don't think that undermines the truth of it. Something doesn't have to be early for it to be true. And it could be discovered slowly. You know? Sure. And I think of enthronement, uh, you know, that he was always yeah. the, the heir, but uh, as Romans one, three says, declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection. Nice. The nice, so, nice. So he, he assumes the throne. He sits at the right hand. He, 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 he takes the office. I mean, Hebrews uses the language of perfection. He was perfected through sufferings. I don't think that means what he was morally imperfect before. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he's not, he's not locked and loaded to be the Christ uh, until after the resurrection to function, to function as the, as the Lord. To function well, as that, that language of perfection then uh, demonstrates why Hebrew is a slightly more developed mode of thought because that the language of perfection allows for a little bit more awareness of you know his status prior to resurrection and yet yeah no that's really good well speaking of the name then let's let's conclude with this before we explore some sermon starters so what is this name that is above every name that's being given to Jesus apparently in his resurrection? Well, what's going on here? So I, I left out another, another, uh, this is um, the additions I gave you early are, are not surprising. I also uh, have wondered if the beginning of verse 10 is also a Pauline addition at the name of Jesus, because as, as Richard Balcom and N.T. Wright and others have said, when you think of a Jewish perspective, the name above every name, there is no question from a Jewish perspective, in my mind, that's talking about yeah. the name above every name is Yahweh. That's the yeah. name above every name, and with the at the name of Jesus, it it, it makes you say, "Well, the name is Jesus." Kind of softens uh, it a little, yeah. And and uh, Richard Balcom would say, "Oh, but Yeshua has Yahweh in it. Jesus saves Joshua, Yeshua, Yah." Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So so Balcom is very clever. I think he's he's far too clever for reality, but um, <laughs> but anyway. All those debates aside, I personally am convinced that the name above every name, it just can't be anything other than Yahweh, because that is the name above every above every name. And and of course, Jesus Christ is Lord. What does Lord translate? Um, kurios. What what does it translate in the Old Testament? Whenever they came to Yahweh in the text of the Hebrew text, they translated it as kurios. And so when when it says that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, Balcom argues that they would have heard Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Now that's that's uh, we're getting really deep there. How sure. does Jesus go from not being Yahweh to becoming Yahweh? You know, uh, lots of of uh, pretzeling uh, questions there. But I bottom line, I do think name above every name has to be Yahweh. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, and again, in terms of correspondences with other developments in early Christianity, there's a lot of talk about the name that's been given in John 17, just to kind of mention another complicated passage. And But I think here, whatever the source and how it came about, the tension between the name that it was above every name and the name of Jesus um, I mean, you know me, I, I, we've had this conversation before, but listeners may not be aware. I tend to think of like, instead of thinking of the New Testament as teaching the doctrine of the Trinity, the later doctrine of the Trinity, um, it, it, or that it's hidden there and it was discovered, I tend to think of the doctrine of Trinity as the least wrong solution to these tensions that are in the text. Because in some ways, that's the tension right there. The Trinity Trinity and incarnation doctrines are attempts to say both of those things, that there's both two names and one name. Which is it? Yes, right? I mean, that's like, <laughs> Trinity is kind of an articulation of the mystery, whatever was the agenda of the, the framers of Nicaea. And I bring that up to say that I actually kind of love the, the ambiguity or tension from the end of verse nine to the beginning of 10. Cause it's like, so it's the name that's above every name. And yet that's the unpronounceable name. And so it's almost like God has given us the pronounceable name, the name Jesus. Jesus. And, and then Lord has this kind of double sense, both kind of Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. Instead, it's got this kind of Greek meaning, this Greco Roman sense, but has this possible ambiguity potential side and I kind of, you know, and then it ends and then it gets confusing again under the glory of God, the father. Well, which is it? I thought we're all bowing before Jesus, but, but it's actually all to God, the father's glory. And I think there's a kind of, there's a play on language here that, that again, kind of raises puzzles conceptually, but when we bring it back to the kind of ethos, not the logos, but the ethos of the text, those tensions of the high it's so ironic that a text like this comes all about, we get worried about how to protect the highness of God and how that relates to the lowliness of God. When the whole kind of ethos of the text is that highness is, is, is to be let go of in order to live in lowliness. And what's been enthroned in highness is the lowliness of Jesus. And so if you want to, if you want to be high, <laughs> Go low, right? Live low. That's yeah. that's yeah. how that's how we're what we're being. That's the life we're being invited into. At least as I understand it. Yeah, and I I I, I think of John eight fifty eight um, when I when I get to the last part of these verses. You know that uh, before Abraham was, I am, where, <laughs> where it's generally generally agreed. You know that that uh, Jesus there is alluding to the burning bush. You know where God reveals His name as Yahweh, the I am who I, who I am, and so I think I think we have good reason to believe that the Johannine com- community, especially, uh, identified Jesus in some way with with the name of God Yahweh, and we see that here, of course, I think in this passage because He's given the name above every name, but in a way that's celebrated and so unresolved in terms of the conceptual tensions that raises, you know, that's why it helps to think of it as a poem because it helps us think about how a poem would say things in a way that wouldn't tie up every loose end raised by our more analytical minds like you and I are. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, uh, perhaps now we've just proven that uh, scholars and, and uh, left brain types like us uh, don't know how to read poetry, but alas, this is what we do, right? Let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. All right. Okay. All right, we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with uh, Ken Shank, and we're looking at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let's explore some sermon starters. What would, if you were being invited to preach, maybe last minute covering for somebody, or maybe you have a long time to prep, what what kind of direction might you go with a passage like this, specifically around you know Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, Easter Sunday, that kind of time of year? Yeah. Um, what what comes to mind? Well, um, what what came to mind before you mentioned that reminded me that this is Palm Sunday uh, preparation. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind is, of course, the concept of servant leadership. Um, this is the classic text for uh, servant leadership. 
Um, I actually preached this text. Maybe I, was it the Lord? Was it not the Lord? I was in a, a context where I felt like the pastor was lording it over um, those who were under uh, his employment. And um, uh, I won't tell you where it was, but uh, <laughs> whether it was the Lord or not the Lord, I preached on being a servant um, rather than lording you taking your, you know, you may have certain formal authority because of the position that you've been given, you know, but that's, it's not the way of Christ to, to take advantage of the authority uh, that right. you've been, you've been given. And of course, um, maybe by the time you hear this, uh, the Ravi Zacharias sca- scandal will be long in the past, but nobody talking about it, but it is very tempting for, for wow. uh, yeah. somebody who's invested with authority or formal position or power. It's, it's difficult. I, I listened to a Steve Deneff sermon uh, recently in which he said, the only, the only way to overcome power is to lose. <laughs> um, hmm. There may be other ways, but um, it is very difficult um, when you have formal authority for that, not to, to change um, uh, how you treat others. And Jesus says, no, I mean, the, Paul says, no, Paul says, we should have the form of a servant, no matter what authority or um, uh, power might be given to you. That 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 Jesus is the servant uh, approach to um, to using the authority God has given. Now, how does that relate to Palm Sunday? Um, well, I suppose this is the this is the week where Jesus shows us how to do it the most. Yeah, this is the week where. Well, and it's he, appropriate. I mean this this text invites us to say that what we see in the story of Jesus is not just something; it's Surely something he does first and foremost for us and on our behalf, thanks be to God. But having recognized that, he's also inviting us in to sharing in his sufferings and showing us a way of being in the world. So I like to say the first thing first, just to avoid any kind of messianic complex or anything like that. There are forms of suffering that are unjust that should be resisted and called out. But having said that, um, and that Christ's sufferings are unique and, not, and the, they don't need repeated by us. Nevertheless, um, this is our, this is a way of, a way of life, a way of death, the way of the cross. I remember my, my father used to say like, and this has some to do with stories he's had to share even about, even about his own dad, who was a very holy man, uh, but was very conflict averse. And my father used to say things like, well, you know, sometimes you have to choose between preserving your own holiness and actually leading a community. Like that, that sometimes leadership requires sacrificing a pursuit of your own uh, sort of holiness in the sense of avoidance of being in contact with anything messy and evil and dirty. The beautiful thing, of course, in the story of Jesus is that his holiness comes into contact with the unholy and renders the unholy holy, right? Again, something we see in Mark, right? The unclean spirits, he touches them. And instead of them rendering him unclean, it renders them yeah. clean. Yeah. And I remember sharing that principle one time with a, with a friend of ours, I won't say the name, uh, but a mutual friend of both of ours, Ken, who I shared it one time and he said, you know what? I think that's true. There's only one way to, to cut that Gordian knot and that's the way of the cross. You have to be willing to suffer in leadership, you know, to take on, to not use your power to, de- to, to destroy your enemies is the only way to, to lead, uh, to have authority and also to, to pursue holiness. Uh, the way of the cross is the only way to do those at the same time, you know? And I was like, I thought that was really deep. <laughs> I've been reflecting on it ever since. It was a couple of years ago when they said that. But in many ways, I mean, he's talking about what this passage is setting forth for us, which Paul introduces in an ethical context, in the context of live like this, have this mindset. And again, not don't, you don't have to do exactly what he did. In fact, there's things he did that you shouldn't do, but it's a, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a way of of thinking and an attitude, a perspective from which we would make decisions and and choose actions. There's a great word, uh, cruciform, the cruciform yeah. life. I, um, I don't know who came up with this word. Maybe you you know, but the idea of living living your life in the shape of the cross, which I take to be all about this passage about uh, about um, uh, being willing to s- uh, sacrifice ourselves, to humble ourselves, to empty ourselves um, for for the, for the good of others and for 
um, the good, the the service of Christ. Um, again, not in a kind of a unhealthy, masochistic, sadistic, or um, sorry, masochistic kind of self-inflicted pain kind of way. Not like that, but but a true sacrifice, not an unhealthy one. Not a look at me, I'm a martyr. I mean, I, I've I've known people who I felt like they almost wanted to be martyred, uh, and that's there's no there's no glory in that. But living a life in the sh- taking up your cross and following, you know, take up your cross and follow me uh, in the way that we live our our life. And of course, Jesus does it. Yeah, he does. And I think I wonder if if these verbs. There's two verbs with himself as the ob- as the object. Yep. I think that could be developed in a sermon on it context, right? Verse seven, but he emptied, emptied himself. himself. And then verse eight, um, he lowered or humbled himself. And that makes me wonder if, and then you can say, when you get to nine, right? God, right? God emphasis, then God super exalted and God bestowed upon him. But the root word here is the root for grace. Yes. That he graced, graced him, him with the name that is above every name. Again, do we receive the name that is above every name at our resurrection? No, I do not believe that that was what Paul was teaching, nor is it uh, uh, true. But the pattern, the the shape, the form of this life is what we um, can look forward to. And we can ask actually, you know, look around. I mean, you could go through this whole form because he says it's a mindset, right? Verse five. So, Okay look around and ask myself, you know, what, you know, what power authority do I have opportunities? Do I have, even if it's small, right? Especially authority, I think is a nice word. A lot of people don't feel like they have any power, but they usually have authority over something, right? Whether it's a, your children, whether it's just even in the context of friendship or in workspace, you have some kind of authority, right? And to see that, okay, do I see that as booty? Do I see it as, as, Booty's a silly word. Uh, plunder. That was better, right? Something spoils. Thing to yeah, you know. Am I willing to to let go of that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. To loosen my grip on them. So there's that loosening of the grip is kind of the first motion, right? And then the, yeah, the, the first one. The first one is I have something, but I'm not going to take advantage of it. Yes. Yeah. And then the second one is others uh, are going to do something to me. I'm going to let them. There you go. Um, I'm going to let others um, do me wrongly. I don't always have to fight back. And all you have to do, to, and I think it's important, I think if someone's going to preach this sermon, to acknowledge that, again, this is a form of life. This isn't a, an instruction, a, a command that you've now disobeyed, right? It's not, oh, if you ever push back, if you ever fight back, you're now not a good Christian. I don't think, it, I don't think that right. it's being presented as a form, a schema, a way. Right. And then there's a discernment, have the mind in you. So in you have the mindfulness to make decisions case by case. You know, I mean, I just was with a friend not that long ago and he was sharing some frustrations with another person, coworker. Right. And I found myself wanting to say, and I, I, let me rephrase, I sinned and did say, (laughs) like, like, I started scheming how we can get this guy in trouble. Right. Let's punish this guy for making your life miserable. Right. And, and I actually, a few days later, had to apologize to that friend. Uh, I chose to say to him, hey, I, I was feeling powerless and I wanted to seize the power I did have, whatever influence I had to kind of get back at this guy, you know? And so there was a moment of, I had to, you know, there was some humbling that took place there again that I didn't do in the moment. But that's, that's a kind of story, of, a, fa- a story of failure, but of discovery too, of growth, I hope. Um, that hopefully even though, fits this passage. Yeah. And even though we're not going to become Yahweh, um, that's not biblical. Jesus is rewarded after death and, and we may not be rewarded. We may not be exalted until, I mean, sometimes God does reward in this life, but, but there will be a reward. I mean, it is biblical to believe that, that, um, absolutely that, that God will recognize us for our, um, emptying and humbling, uh, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yep. But don't expect it to come in this life. 
And that's not a motivation. Our motivation is not, I'm going to get a real crown. You know, I'm going to get a great crown for this. That's not our motivation, but it is part of the teaching. Yeah, no. And I think it's something we can look forward to and, and have hope for, you know, and even again, we don't receive the name that is above every name, but second Peter does say we become partakers of the divine nature sharing in his immortality. So immortality is the a property of God, strictly speaking, first Timothy six says so. But we come to share in it, Christ first as first fruits, but also us. So we share in what God has. Again, not the same as, but we're not expecting anyone to bow. And the beautiful thing is, I think if you're in a, if you're preaching or teaching in a context where there's some kind of singing and worship, it's it's a great this this hymn itself lands with bowing and kneeling before yeah. and celebrating. And I think that transition is, I think, really key that it should inspire, it should inspire action in us, but also should inspire celebration, right? And just of what he did. So that's a tension is, I've been to a lot of Palm Sunday, Good Friday and Easter sermons that are kind of all one or the other. It's all celebration of what he did and we just receive it by faith, that's it. And I've also heard others where all we do is talk about, you know, Jesus as a model for servant leadership and it's all about us, right? And I think this passage, precisely because of the way Paul locates it in his argument, invites us to kind of do both of those things, to both celebrate what's unique about him, his own form of God, you know, his, his name above all names, his death on a cross, but at the same time, ha- see how, okay, that does have implications for us. So there's a kind of, I think both sides of that equation need to be balanced. And honestly, if someone was listening to this and they're preparing any teaching or preaching, that's the only sort of single nugget of advice I would give is to say, hey, make sure there's both the celebration of what Jesus did uniquely and our formation in our own ethical life. And that you don't forget, you don't trade for one or the other, but that there's always a bit of both, at least in sermons on this text and in general in our preaching should have, I think, both of those aspects and beware of ever getting stuck in one or the other. By the way, it occurs to me that this this um, this hymn follows the pattern of Passion Week, or it can be. Oh, my, so it does. You're comes, right. He comes in on Palm Sunday as oh. the king. So he comes, oh. in, he comes in in the form of God on Palm Sunday, you know, writing, writing you know, with palm branches and Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes in in the form of God. And you've mentioned Mark several times. That's all that Peter really understands. Peter doesn't yeah. understand he emptied himself, took the form of a servant. Later that week, you know, Good Friday, uh, he humbled himself even to the point of death. But then Sunday, Sunday's a coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming, as Tony Campola used to say. Um, yeah. God super exalts him, uh, super exalts him on Sunday and gives him the name above every name. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. You know, and um, it'd be cool to make a video, you know, taking clips from like a good Jesus film, there's different ones, right? Jesus film kind of Luke based. And then there's the Matthew visual Bible or some others taking clips and then maybe just music don't have the dialogue over it. And then in captions just have lines from Philippians in order. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? So then it would be kind of seen as a kind of, as a shorthand of the whole of Holy week. Oh, that would be so cool. Yeah. Somebody make that and send it to me. And if you have, you know, if you have several services, I know you're going to have a Palm Sunday and an Easter service. You may have a Good Friday service. You know, you could you could make this the skeleton yeah, of, you could. of the whole week. That'd be awesome. Well, man, this was a fun conversation, Ken. Thanks so much for your time. Always fun. Yeah. Thanks as always to Todd and Eric for their production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to all our listeners uh, for listening to the show and getting the word out on social media to others, especially to our patron saints who support the show financially. I have a day job. I don't see a cent of that. That goes to the production team behind the scenes have been doing that work for free for for over two years now. So uh, check us out on patreon.com slash fresh text. If you'd like to become a patron saint of the show and get some extra content along with that. And uh, with that, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Great to be with you. Bye.